Let's start. Um, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, hi, Mayor Jane. It's good to see you again, all of you. Um, um, thank you for the gift of this day, Lord, for the gift of our life from you. Um, for your presence all this day, for the good that we do together. Um, we've got a newcomer here on the threshold of what, who knows what at this point, but um, watch over this young woman a lot ahead of her and help her in the choices that she's making. Um, she's entering a really difficult film field and um, with lots of dark things. So strengthen her mind, her spirit, um, her trust in you, um, strengthen her courage and her humility. She will need them both. Um, I ask a blessing on um, Sorry, the, the, the baby's name? Le huh? Layla. The baby is Layla. Layla, yeah. Um, watch over that, that little infant, that little girl in her helplessness. Um, surround her with your protection, please. Let no harm come to her. Whatever the difficulties are, see her through them. Please watch over her. And um, at, at least as importantly, watch over her parents. I mean, they're helpless to watch this new creature suffer already. So let this trial be um, an occasion for both of them growing in their faith, their trust in you. Whatever happens, um, life is so vulnerable always. Um, we feel it especially when a child's just born. It's, it's so needy. I'm sorry, somebody's father, or with the... The catechist. The ca oh, sit, um, Amanda, Jill, what yeah, was... Carol Ann. Carol? Jill. Jill, Jill, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, watch over Jill, her father just passed. Yeah. Um, receive her father into your kingdom. Um... Um, whatever his sins, wash them away. Let our prayers speed him on his way. That's what prayers do. Collectively, there's a greater love in all of us than there is in usually most of us singularly. So let our prayers help him um, and let him take a joy. We hear people talk about poor souls in purgatory. God, they're on the way to heaven. Um, let him take a joy. Everything we're doing in the purgatorial right now is showing us that purgatory is a joy. People want to be there, so um, let his strength um, come to her, his daughter um, in his passing. Help her to know that he's in good hands right now, and he's left um, a world of sorrow. So um, let her be strengthened. Um, help her to find in this passing a strength in herself um, that she might not have had without it. I also ask a blessing on all that we're doing here. It's in the middle of Lent. Thank you. Um, thank you for what we're doing. Um, it's it's a period of letting go. Um, that's what Lent is. Um, it's tr renouncing the world, making renunciations more a part of our lives, 
to discipline ourselves, to starve in the desert, to deny ourselves. It's not easy in a culture that encourages us to have whatever we want, but strengthen us in our efforts to let go. And I say that particularly with Connie in mind. Um, she just lost her mother-in-law after a long, long ordeal. Watch over Jackie, receive her into your kingdom. Wash away her sins. Wash them away and let our prayers help. Um, let her know the joy finally of being with you. Whatever hardships here, let them fall away. And most especially um, for that friend in our group, for all the burdens she carries here weekly, let Connie find a joy in that faith of hers, um, knowing that she, um, her mother-in-law is in your hands. We offer all of these prayers in you, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, um, I want to pick up with um, T.S. Eliot's poem. Um, I'm so glad we're doing it. What I'm going to do is read the first part of it again, even though we started it, just to pick it up, because I want to go back to that question. I want to take a few minutes to... to I, I'm going to put I'm going to put everybody on mute. Um, and once again, um, um, Lindsay, I'm, I'm putting on mute just so it cuts out background noise. But anytime, anytime anybody has anything to offer, jump in. You want to fight? Jump in. You have a question? Jump in. Just feel free always to jump in. Okay. Um, I want to I want to go back. Um, to Ash Wednesday, and I'm going to read the beginning again because I want to go back to that question that I asked because I think it's so important. But I want to keep going forward. I won't come back to this first section again or any of the sections that I've read, although I'll recall them week by week as, as we pick up the poem again. But I want to read it, and then I'll read the second section, and then I'd like to take a few minutes with that question that I put to everybody. I really want to hear what you say. So T.S. Eliot's Ash Wednesday... I think the greatest poet of the 20th century, and you all know from our work together that poets are helping us to see and feel things we often don't. Um, um, some of the favorite poems, Supernatural Love. Lindsay, I'm saying this with you in mind. You might just um, go in the poetry packet online. There's a poem by um, Gertrude um, Schneckenberg, an American poetess, called Supernatural Love. It is so touching. It's it's a poem about um, told from the point of view of a woman when she was four years old. So she's recalling this experience when she pricked her finger. There's nothing in the poem, nothing going on. And I'm saying, those of you who know this, I'm saying everything is going on. Um, the poet is showing us things that ordinarily we don't see. Um, hi, Maria. I'm glad you're here. Um, even, though, even though you're late... Um, <laughs> Sorry. No, that's. I'm glad you're here. I'd miss you if you weren't here. Um, or T.S. Eliot's um, Four Quartets. Little Gidding, to me, is one of the most powerful expressions of the Holy Spirit that I know in, <clears throat> in all of literature. So the poet very often returns us to the concrete world to help us see and feel again something that's there that we may have missed. Okay? Eliot's poetry is 
intellectual and abstract. It's not like so much of the poetry we've read. But this poem's appropriate because um, it, it's, it's entitled Ash Wednesday. It marks his conversion and it's Lent for us. So it's a good, it's a good time to read this poem. Ash Wednesday, T.S. Eliot. Because I do not hope to turn again, because I do not hope, because I do not hope to turn, desiring this man's gift and that man's scope, I no longer strive to strive towards such things. Why should the aged eagle stretch its wings? Why should I mourn the vanished power of the usual rain? Because I do not hope to know again the infirm glory of the positive hour, because I do not think, because I know I shall not know the one veritable transitory power, because I cannot drink there where trees flower and springs flow, for there is nothing again. Because I know that time is always time and place is always an only place, and what is actual is actual only for one time and only for one place. I rejoice that things are as they are, and I renounce the blessed face and renounce the voice, because I cannot hope to turn again. Consequently, I rejoice having to construct something upon which to rejoice, and pray to God to have mercy upon us, and pray that I may forget these matters that with myself I too much discuss, too much explain, because I do not hope to turn again let these words answer for what is done, not to be done again. May the judgment not be too heavy upon us. Because these wings are no longer wings to fly, but merely vans to beat the air, the air which is now thoroughly small and dry, smaller and drier than the will, teach us to care and not to care, teach us to sit still. Pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Pray for us now and at the hour of our death. That's the first section. We read it last week. I'll, I'll continue. I'm going to read the second section. I'm not going to comment on it. I'm going to leave it for you guys. But I'd like to go back to that first section with a question that I asked last week. Section 2. Lady, three white leopards sat under a juniper tree in the cool of the day, having fed to satiety. On my legs, my heart, my liver, and that which had been contained in the hollow round of my skull. And God said, Shall these bones live? Shall these bones live? And that which had been contained in the bones, which were already dry, said, Chirping, Because of the goodness of this lady, and because of her loveliness, and because she honors the Virgin in meditation, we shine with brightness. And I, who am here dissembled, proffer my deeds to oblivion and my love to the posterity of the desert and the fruit of the gourd. It is this which recovers my guts, the strings of my eyes, and the indigestible portions which the leopards reject, the ladies withdrawn in a white gown to contemplation in a white gown. Let the whiteness of bones atone to forgetfulness there is no life in them. As I am forgotten and would be forgotten, so I would forget, thus devoted, concentrated in purpose. God said, Prophecy to the wind, to the wind only, for only the wind will listen. 
and the bones sang chirping with the burden of the grasshopper saying, Lady of silences, calm and distressed, torn and most whole, rose of memory, rose of forgetfulness, exhausted and life-giving, worried, reposeful. The single rose is now the garden where all loves end, terminate, torment of love unsatisfied, the greater torment of love satisfied. End of the endless journey to no end, conclusion of all that is inconclusible, speech without word and word of no speech, grace to the mother for the garden where all loves end. Under a juniper tree the bones sang, scattered and shining. We are glad to be scattered. We did a little good to each other. Under a tree, in the cool of the day, with a blessing of sand, forgetting themselves and each other, united in the quiet of the desert. This is the land which he shall divide by lot, and neither division nor unity matters. This is the land we have our inheritance. The third section begins, At the first turning of the second stair, I turned and saw below the same shape twisted on the banister, under the vapor in the fetid air, struggling with the devil of the stairs, who wears the deceitful face of hope and despair. I'm going to leave the rest of that. We'll pick up the third section and do it next week. I hope everybody hears the image of the stairs because that's out of Dante's Purgatorio. You remember after each leads, he has to climb a set of stairs. That's, that's part of the effort of climbing Purgatory. Okay, I'd like to go back to the first section. Because I do not hope to turn again, because I do not hope, because I do not hope to know again, because I know that time is always time and place. What's he doing? Why? Why does he begin all those opening stanzas with dependent clauses? I'm trusting everybody knows what a... Lindsay, you... Justin, you know what a dependent clause is. This is, a, this is an ex-English teacher, so... You all know that it, a dependent clause is contingent on an independent. I studied because I wanted to do well. Um, I ran away because I wanted to live. You know, the dependent clause only makes sense um, in relation to the independent clause, which it depends on. So, but in this opening of a poem that marks Eliot's conversion, he begins. All these stanzas in the opening section with dependent clauses. So all the starter independent clauses are missing. They're absent. They're gone. What is he doing? Why? And let me... So any of those questions, the, the specific question is, what's the independent clause that would start those? That's the one I asked all of you to do, so I'm really eager to hear what you guys came up with. Melody... Oh, this, is, sorry, sorry. this is Julie... And I, I'm going to wade out into this. I'm going to really step out here and say what I think. Good, good. <laughs> okay. For me, it's, it's, the, the, it's he's dependent on God. That's the dependent God. Well, what he, for me, what I heard was he would say, God, please help me, hear me. I'm so afraid. I'm in despair because I hope, do not hope to turn again because I do not hope. That, yeah, that it would make sense to me if if 
you're in despair and you're you're calling to God, then that would be the independent clause. Can you frame it specifically? I'm afraid you're going to ask another question. <laughs> don't blame me. You you're the one. Don't, you step forward now. You take it. Um, come on, give me give me a clause, can you? Um, you may not be able to, but I want to press you if I can a bit. Can you? Well, just um, you mean like a poetry clause, like no, no, God, no. Um, just what? Give me the statement, the words. What would you say? God, hear me. Please help me. Okay. I am afraid. Good. Because I do not hope to turn again. Good. Okay. Good. Good for you. Good for you. Anybody else? Melody, you look like you're. You got something in that mind and heart of yours. To me, it. Oh, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. To me, it sounds like he's dying. So he's dying, and because he's dying, he doesn't hope to turn again. He doesn't hope to do anything. He knows that he's dying. Um, what was the. Um, I no longer strive to strive towards such things. Why should an aged eagle stretch his wings? So he's he's past the point of um, caring about life, so to speak, because he's, I guess, maybe ready to move on. Doesn't sound like he's quite ready for that, but he does, doesn't seem to be engaged in this life anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody else? Lindsay, I know. Have you had a chance to read the poem? Um, I had a chance to read what you read to us. <laughs> oh, okay. Do you have a thought? Yeah. Do you have a thought? Um, I liked what Melody said, but it also made me think that he was repenting. Um, because it says I do not hope to turn, like turning towards sin. Um, so that's what it made me think of initially. Yeah. yeah. So. Anybody else? Karen, yes. Bob. We kind of felt like he was, um, had lost faith and was trying to turn back to it. Wow. Okay, let me let me jump in. Um, it's interesting to hear this um, because it seems to me some of you are being really sensitive to the spirit of it. I think, I mean, I'm saying that positively that I think there's a sense of death that is um, implied. It's a sort of backstory, but it seems to me the whole force of the poem is that he's turning away from it to life. It's a conversion poem. Let me give you, let me give you my, and, and, unless anybody else wants to step in right now. Um, um, where did, David and Kay, are you there? I'm not, oh yeah, David and Kay, do you have any thoughts about this, Kay? Do you have a thought about it? No. I hope we haven't lost them. Um, let no, me. Uh, we, we are here. Do you but, have? Uh, I kind of agree with uh, Ju Judy or Julie. 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 Uh, 
that he's in such despair. The independent clause is like what she was saying. Yeah, I thought Julie's clause was a good one. Yes, yeah. and he is seeking help from God. Yep, yep. Oh, Tracy said. That's on the Monday class, Doug. I know. Oh, that. Um, I'm going to give you my independent clause. See what you think. Um, it seems to me the the thought or sentiment behind the independent clause is he's decided to enter the Church of Christ, to return to church, so that he won't be caught up in the world. All of you. Um, all of you will remember Boethius's wheel. Do you remember the still point at the center of the wheel and the turning? Eliot's got that very much on his mind. He's got it here and he's got it in a number of his poems. When you're on the circumference of that wheel, you're always twisting and turning. Things are, you say things partially and in passing. They're all going, one thing after another. Remember that the closer you stand towards that center, the closer you, you get to a faith. That doesn't mean your mind stops, but it does mean whatever you do with your powers of reason are now imbued with a faith. Remember, that's the still point at the center. So at the circumference, things are turning, but at the still point, it's still. And it's from that point that you can see the whole of things, not things partially. Okay? So he's turning from the world and entering the church. Um, let me give you the independent clauses, for stanza by stanza. So the independent clause of the first stanza is, I surrender my will to Christ and his church because I do not hope to turn again, because I do not hope, because I do not hope to turn. All of those are actions of the will. So it seems to me the independent clause is, I surrender my will to Christ, his church. Ash Wednesday, remember, is a formal um, to call it ritual of the Catholic Church. He's not just joining, he's not just returning to his faith, he's returning to a faith in which that faith is expressed through a ritual. Ashes on the head, from dust you came to dust you shall return. Right? It's a ritual. It marks a ritual, a still point. So I think to the first, because he's talking about movement, because I do not hope to turn. So I think what he's saying is, I surrender my will to Christ and his church. That's what I would say. To the second, because I do not hope to know again, the clause to that is, I surrender my mind to him as well. First one is my will. Second one is my mind. See how it fits, because I do not hope to know again the earned from glory of the positive hour, because I do not think, because I know I should... You know, the way the mind gets unsettled, because it's at that outer will, knowing and knowing and turning and finding out you don't know what you thought you know. He's going to that one place that will help quiet his mind. The third stanza, because I know that time is always time in places... I surrender my efforts to control time and space. Because I know that time, space, and place is always an only place. And the important clause, thought, in that third stanza is, and only for one place I rejoice that things are as they are, and I renounce the blessed face. There's only one place, one time, um, where he can have answers to everything. 
Um, the fourth stanza, I pray to God to have mercy. The fifth one, I think, is a conclusion. The independent clause for that is, I do all of this. Why? Why do I do it? Because these wings are no longer wings to fly, but merely vans to beat the air. The air which is now thoroughly small and dry. He goes on and on. Teach us to sit still. And then he ends with um, the phrase from the rosary. Pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Pray for us now and at the hour of our death. Um, it, it, it's a poem about turning from the world. Renouncing it. Death. Everything that's going to die, everything that's going to pass, and committing himself to Christ, giving himself to Christ. Here's my question. I mean, it's the it's the the one related to the first one. Why did he do this? Why does he do this? Why did he write? A, why did he put in those independent clauses? I think mine are pretty accurate. I I hope you will agree. I hope maybe some of you will disagree with that. I think they're they're pretty faithful to the poem. Why did he do that? Why did he omit them? It leaves the uh, it leaves the the meaning of the poem open to. Uh, it seems to me it can be used. These sentiments can be used by different people for different uh, purposes because he didn't supply the. The uh, independent clause. Mike, flesh that out. What what would have been some of the differences? What what would have been his motive in leaving them out? Well, just in for the first stanza, I couldn't decide on an independent clause. I had three. Uh, I was I was thinking totally related to uh, repentance. So it could have been I mortify myself or I confess my sins, or I look to the Lord. All of those for me would have worked just fine in that first stanza mm -hmm. as yep. an independent clause. Yep. Why, so, now, take your explanation and relate to them. Why would, what, what would have been his motive for leaving them out? What would he accomplish mm. by leaving them out? What's, what's his point? Why did he, why did he do that? I, I don't know. I can't. I can't uh, speak for why, but it it makes the poem. It makes it less personal. It makes it less targeted. It, it's. I, I can't. I, I don't know why he would want to remove his personal motivation for writing it the way he did. But that's what he did. Yeah. Yeah. May May I? Okay. Say yes. For sure. Go ahead. Yeah. I think by leaving the independent clause out, he's not boxing anything in. He is leaving up to the reader. The reader can make their own independent clause on their own. And I think that will make his poem more powerful, more, uh, what shall I say? Uh, leaves impression, stronger impression on the reader's mind. Yeah. Yeah, good for you guys. And if you just keep in Mike's comment about the spirit of impersonality by removing that, I mean, so that it would have the effect that you guys are describing. Um, 
Anne, I've got a, um, do we have you? I've got your circle here, but not an image. Are you, do we lose you? Are you oh, okay? I'm here. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> Anybody else? Melody, come on, I can see that. Um, so, in the same spirit that you guys have been talking about for repentance, I mean, some people um, can uh, have a conversion when they're 18, and some people have a conversion when they're 30, and some people have a conversion when they know that they're dying. So, it, that open-ended um, phrasing allows the reader to think of themselves of when that conversion happened for them. Or, or under whatever motives, too. I mean, along the lines of what you're saying, yeah. Let me ask this, too, and then I'll put it away, because I, I don't want to beat this. I, I so enjoy the poem, and there's a, a gravity to it that you guys are all responding to, that um, a, a solemn, grave moment that the poem marks. It's a turn from a way of life that he doesn't want to go back to. Um, so it's an important moment. What would happen, do you think, because I, 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 as I've said to you before, Eliot was, was one of the great poets of the 20th century, and the modern intellectual elite flocked to him. They knew that he was a man to be reckoned with. He was so intelligent, so bright, the critical writings he did. He went, as you know, he went on to get the Nobel Prize for Literature. The critical writings are some of the most important critical writings of the 20th century. There are few people who can compare to what he did, but he also did a really, he, he, he created one of the finest bodies of poetry in the 20th century that speak to a modern condition. Um, most Christians would recognize that the modern world is going to hell, that it's destroying itself in lots of ways, that the love that Christ offered the world has been rejected. We've got a, um, a culture now that's that's attempting to live by secular means, and there's destruction everywhere. I mean, I don't want to list the things. You, you guys fill in the blanks, but... Um, it's a dark, dark world. And Eliot was a voice speaking for the intellectuals. He, he was so intelligent. And then he converted, and the intellectuals turned from him. I mean, they, they didn't see that coming, because most of them are non-Christian, and to see this man whom everybody admired become Christian was like um, a slap in the face. It, it, it's as if he'd rejected everything that they believed in. So let me ask this question. What if Eliot had said, to take Mike's lines, because I thought they were good, or Julie's, or any of yours, but um, I repent. Um, I don't want to go back to the ways I did things, so I'm surrendering my will. No, I can't say that, because that's included. So I'm surrendering my will to Christ in his church, because I do it. What if he had put that in? Or for the second stanza, I surrender my mind, because I don't want to, um, I, I, I do not hope to know again. What would a modern intellectual do reading those lines? Immediately reject it. I mean, wouldn't they? I mean, it's amazing. It's I mean, because one of the problems he's facing is, how does a poet who's become Christian, who's not going to become fundamentalist, he's, he's not going to go there. He belongs to the high church, Catholic, Anglican. He's not a fundamentalist. He believes in the powers of the intellect. 
that faith and reason were meant to go together. His whole work, his whole corpus of critical works shows a brilliant, brilliant mind. Um, what, what would a Christian do? How, how would he speak to an age that's become unchristian? How does a Christian address that world? I mean, you know that we're getting pressure from the church, which I'm glad for. The, the retreat um, sessions at St. Francis are about um, the mission work, to evangelize, to get out of the church. How does somebody today take Christ to the world when the world doesn't want to hear anything about Christ? So Eliot's facing a really difficult problem. You know, he's bright. Um, he's a poet. His first poems are very, very dark. The Wasteland, the love song of Jafford Prufrocker, are the two poems that in some ways mark the modern world. If, if you want to read two poems that, that the modern world took as a mark, the threshold of the modern world, read those two poems. Love song of Jafford Prufrocker is a poem in, in the Inferno. It's Prufrock inviting us to join him on a journey into hell, his own hell. Wasteland, same thing. The modern world is a wasteland. We get the, Dante, or I mean, Eliot got that term from Dante. We talked about it when we went through the burning sand when we were in the Inferno. So, um, those two poems mark a modern spirit. But here in the middle of his life, he, he writes this poem. He's entering um, the Anglo-Catholic Church and does this poem. So, so I think all the reasons that everybody's given are really good, that um, it leaves it open for people to fill in their own. But, and it, the other thing is it raises a mystery. It raises a serious question for any poetry reader because anybody who's serious about poetry would have to struggle with those answers to say, why does he do this? You know, it's going to force them to look hard at something to try to understand it. It's not a pious, it's not a pious, it's not a fundamentalist. Um, it's a poem that makes demands on the reader to think, to feel. It's just very modern in, in every respect. So, Okay, any, any last comments or questions or before we... Sorry? Sorry. To me, in repeating over and over when we're talking about this dark, secular world, I do, hope, I do not hope, yeah. I do not hope, I do not hope. I'm in a class. <laughs> Is everything okay? Oh, I'm sorry. Julie, go, is that you? Go ahead. It's Ann. Oh, Ann. Sorry, Ann. Yeah. Uh, you know, when he's saying, I do not hope, I do not hope, I do not hope, to me that that makes it more powerful, that repetition. And we're talking about a world where there's not a lot of hope. And to me, that repetition has kind of the same effect as when we say, through my fault, through my fault, through my most <laughs> grievous fault, it really makes it... <laughs> yes. It, Internalized. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. Yes to all those things. Okay. It was a it was a very powerful poem for me, um, and the way he wrote it, the way he did the dependent clauses, I think made it like everybody said, it made it more powerful. Yeah. It made it more personal. 
Yep. Yeah, and it's in, it does make it more personal and impersonal at the same time. Um, okay, um, let's let's go to Dante. Um, I sent you guys an outline, and I also included with the outline a, a little piece that I wrote on poetry. Um, it, it's not. I don't. I don't think we'll get to it tonight, but it, um, I'll mention it next week. I'm not going to go into it in, in detail, but it's a paper on what I'm calling the gathering of the poets on, on the upper ledges, on the ledge of um, gluttony and lust. On those two ledges, Dante meets a number of poets, and it raises serious questions what he's doing. I, I don't want to go into that tonight, but I, I just want everybody to look forward to that and take a Just don't pass that by. Um, he's dealing with poets um, in a obvious way. There's several of them. Why would he do that? Um, Dante's too great an art artist not to have a reason for doing that and it bears a lot on our work. You know, we're, we're talking about right now in T.S. Eliot's poem, why did he do what he did? Um, what does it do to our spirit? What does it do to our faith or our powers of reason? What are these poets doing? Um, I want to read, before we start, I want to read something from the Purgatorial. You don't have to go there. It's on page 313. We're, we're going to get to it, but I want to read it to ask everybody to hold on to it. When Stasius emerges on the level of a, um, avarice, once again, this is just, stop and think about that. This is really crucial. God, this is so, it's so amazing. And pe people reading this poem will overlook it. Dante's a poet. Virgil's a poet. Beatrice went to get Virgil because he was a poet. Virgil's Dante's guide. Here in the level of avarice, Dante's meeting Stasius, a poet. They're going to meet on the same level, on the level of glut um, gluttony, Bonaguenta, a poet. And at the level of lust, they're going to need. They're going to meet Arnett Danielle and Guido Guinizelli. That's Six poets. And you could read this and go by it and think nothing of it. But there's a crucial question going on here about art and how important art is. You, you know that th that's been a major concern all along, certainly for me, the Iliad, the Odyssey, Merchant of Venice, you know, all the, all the works we've done. I, my argument in Merchant of Venice was Portia represents poetry. She reconciles opposites. She's the only one in that play that can reconcile, can save Antonio. If you go back to Merchant of Venice, remember, um, um, Shylock wants him dead, the Jews want him left, I mean the Christians want him left off. Neither one of those is trying to bring justice and mercy together. One's for justice, one's for mercy. Um, if Shylock has his way, Antonio's dead. If the Christians have their way and give mercy, he's dead. Or the laws are dead and, and Venice disappears. The whole struggle that Christ introduced into the world is to bring together justice and mercy, law and love. Um, and we've been reading poets who've been doing that in an amazing way. I mean, I was arguing when we did the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, that they were doing it. <coughs> Boethius is doing it. So... What is Dante doing with these poets? 
I just want that to hang over everybody because there are, are there six of them? Six of them meeting in those upper levels. So, and just to try to put it in context, remember, hell proper begins related to an influence of poetry. Francesca and Paolo are reading the Arthurian romances. It's when they were reading them that they put the book down and they read no more. That's when they commit adultery and the husband comes in and they're dead. Um, and remember Cato at the very beginning of Purgatorio, when the ship arrives and Casella gets off, Dante and Casella start singing. <laughs> How could they not? They haven't seen each other in a long time. So they're overcome with joy and the way they want to express it is through song. And Casella comes up along and bumps them away and says, what are you doing? Get on. You're supposed to go to God. So over and over and over again, Dante's looking at the power of art to influence our lives, to shape our lives. It's been one of the shaping images of the Purgatorio because you know that the mountain is full of art. Goads and checks are all images of an amazing art at work helping everybody find their way. The goads um, are images of the virtues needed to answer the sins. The checks are images of the sins themselves. They're surrounded by what to do and not, and what not to do. So art is not a small thing. What is Dante doing with these poets? Okay, I'm going to read this passage, and I want you to keep it in mind um, um, because it it deals with this question of what is purgatory, what's happening to people, what is God doing with them, what is it we don't see, you know, when we look at each other and talk about our struggles with each other. Um, um, Stasius has just been released and the mountain shakes and he joins the two poets <clears throat> and then he has this answer to, um, to Virgil's question of what just happened 313 you don't have to go there because we're going to leave it directly but I want you to hold this in mind up here the mountain trembles when some soul feels itself pure enough to stand erect or start at once to climb then comes the shout. The will to rise alone proves purity. Once freed, it takes possession of the soul and wills the soul to change its company. It will decline before, but the desire high justice said again, justice. We cannot escape law or justice. Nowhere in this work. High justice said against it, inspired it to wish to suffer. The penitents want to take on burdens because they know, according to justice, they're in sin. Justice calls them to answer that sin. As once it wished to sin, and I, who for 500 years and more have lain here in my pain, felt only now, will free, felt only now, will free to raise me to a higher still. What he's describing is this condition of freedom that comes to the will to get better, to free itself from sin. The will to rise alone proves purity. Once freed, it takes possession of the soul and wills the soul to change its company. We turn from the world in those moments when we want to get free of the wrongs we're doing. That's what the Ash Wednesday is all about. So hold that in mind. What the end result of everything we've been looking at for all the 
in all the penitents we've been watching, is to be free. Um, to satisfy an injustice, to answer it through a justice and God's help in the mercy that he offers. So the purgatorial is um, a condition in which justice and mercy are brought together, not one or the other. Okay, And the end result of it is this freedom where the soul longs to be free and steps into this freedom. It's in the nature of the soul to want that. That's God. That's how God made us. Okay. Okay. Let's um, quick overview. Quick overview. Um, just quick um, overview to get to the things we're going to do this week. Um, I've said that Dante is the um, prophet of the modern world, and I mean it. Florence is the first republic. It's the prototype of the commercial republic. It came into existence in Italy. It begins the Renaissance. It's the first commercial republic of the modern kind. There's not a canto we can read in which Dante is not unmasking, laying bare the nature of the commercial republic. It's our regime. It's us. He's showing us ourselves. So even though he wrote the poem in 1300, it's us. Um, remember when Kinsella comes off the sh um, when sh um, sh Kinsella lands, the boat has just come from Egypt. The souls embarking on purgatory are leaving Egypt, Babylon, the worldliness, the world with all of its torments and confusions and disorders. Um, the major action of the poem is what we can describe in terms of anamnesis, the Greek word for going back, recovering, bringing it forward. Christ's words in the Mass are, do this in memory of me. The Greek for that was anamnesis, do this in, in um, remembrance of me. Going up, like, like this, is, this is Boethius in, in the Consolation that we just finished. Um, remember, Lady Philosophy wanted Boethius to recover his memory. He, he was unjustly sentenced to die. He was going to be executed for a crime he did not commit. He's grieving. Philosophy tells him to stop whining. The only reason he's whining is because he's lost his memory. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't remember his beginnings or his ends. Purgatory is a recovery of that memory, who we once were. All the stages, all the levels are an attempt to clear our sight, to clear our memory, so that we can find out who we were. To go back to what we once were before the fall. The major theme of the purgatory is going home. All the souls are returning to God. To love him, to be loved, to love each other, to be loved. You know that the end, we've talked about this a lot, it is the indwelling of the three persons of the Trinity. They are perfectly indwelling with each other. The human souls were meant to indwell one with another. That means taking on each other's sins, bearing them, not to get stuck in them, bearing them to get better, to help each other get better, to learn to love the, once we, the way we once had loved. So those are, the, those are the major actions, the concerns of the purgatorial. It's man accepting a law, justice, for the sins he's committed, 
and turning to God for the mercy that he needs to work through them to get better. Okay. Um, so the, the, this action of reconciling justice and mercy is central to the whole thing. You, you, it, it makes no sense without it. And I've spoken before that um, one way of looking at the purgatory is this combination of harshness and gentleness. Cato's harsh. He has to be. The rules are harsh. They have to be. We've seen a number of passages. Remember the one of the writer um, who lacked the spurs? Because the Pope was making everything soft. The, 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 the church had taken too much control away from the state. And it, it produced that line, remember, um, Marco Lombard, when, and he quoted the line, O, o Caesar, why, why hast thou forsaken me? That's a play on Christ's words. But it's saying, it's recognizing Caesar's not doing what he should do. Because it's important that the state uphold laws because once laws are relaxed, people become lawless. Um, so the, the, the problems in this relationship between church and state is major to the, um, everything that's going on in the inferno and the purgatory, but especially in the purgatorio. Um, turn to 16. I'm just, this is a quick review. Um, um, this parallel, this parallels uh, um, Marco Lombard's statements earlier. Um, um, 284 at the bottom, men therefore needed the restraint of laws, needed a ruler able at least to discern the towers of the true city. True, the laws are there, but who enforces them? No one. If the laws aren't enforced, people get lax. It's in our nature. We have a fallen nature. No one, the shepherd who is leading you, can chew the cud but lacks the cloven hoof. So the flock um, that see their shepherd's greed for the same worldly goods that they have craved are quite content to feed on what he feeds. The Pope can chew the cud. That is, one of his functions is contemplation and prayer. If you put the state in his hands... He won't have the law, the, the bite needed to enforce them. So one of the major themes running through the whole of the Purgatory is this conflict between church and state and the disorders that um, result from that conflict. And then we ended last week um, looking at the major discourses on page 280, 284 and 5. Um, I just want to briefly recount them and then stop for questions, but... On 284, remember that, that um, Virgil, they're, they're, they're resting now. Um, Marco has, is um, talking about the difficulties that result because of the, the disorders in the world. And he's saying um, that the tendency of human beings is to blame environment, determinism. Bottom of 283. If this were true, then our free will would be annihilated, would um, not be just to render bliss for good or pain. That is, if we have no free will, why punish people? Why reward them? It makes no sense. Um, you men on earth attribute everything to the sphere's influence alone, as if they determine it. If they do, there's no reason to mete out punishments or rewards. 284, the spheres initiate your tendencies, not all of them, but even if they did, 
you have the light that shows you right from wrong and your free will. So the problem is how to, how to nurture a good will. So if the world today has gone astray, the cause lies in yourselves and only there. Um, so he's explaining things, and, and I made the point last time that if you look at our circumstances today, it's, it's very similar to what Dante was facing, because most of the major theories that have formed human beings in the modern world are deterministic. Um, Darwin and Freud. Darwin says human beings are product of these blind forces. And Freud says man has no free will. That's Freud. He's explicit about that. Man has no free will and he's the product of these um, Oedipal influence, these instincts and, and these perverse Poly, what he called polymorphous perverse instincts, these disordered sexual things. It's a little bit like Calvin. These are predetermined. Men have them. He can't escape them. So the general views under which the modern man has come into life make him a victim. He's helpless to do anything. These are things that produce him. The church is the only institution on, on the earth that still protects man's free will in the face of all of these determinisms. On page um, 290, Dante wants to know more and Virgil accommodates him and explains um, where evil comes from. Even, even if there are these deterministic forces in the world, how do we explain evil? And Virgil says, 290, the love of good which failed to satisfy the call of duty here is fortified. The ore once sluggish now is plied with zeal. But once you, but if you want to better understand, give me your full attention, you will reap excellent fruit from this, from this talk of ours. Sorry. Natural love may never be at fault. The other may by choosing the wrong goal by insufficient or excessive zeal. While it's fixed on the eternal good, he says the soul is good, but as it grows up, it begins to turn its desires towards things and, um, and, and then unlawful desires develop. So you can understand how love must be the seed of every virtue growing in you and every deed that merits punishment. Now, since it's a fact that love cannot ignore the welfare of its loving self, God made us to love. He made everything good. There's nothing in the world can hate itself, and since no being can be conceived as being all in itself, severed from the first being, no creature has the power to hate his God. We can outwardly do it, but it's against our nature. Something at the center of the soul calls us to love. So it follows, if I argue well, that evil that man loves must be his neighbor's. This love springs up, up three ways in mortal clay. There are three ways... Um, to love the evil of our neighbors. The first, there is in the man who sees his own success connected to his neighbor's downfall, pride. Thus he longs to see him fall from imminence. Next, he who fears to lose honor and fame, envy. He doesn't want to lose what others have and regrets that they haven't when he doesn't. Power and favor if his, if his neighbor rises. He's vexed by this good. He wishes for the worst. He wants to see people lose those things he doesn't have. Finally, he who wrongs flares up in rage. He who wrongs flares up in rage with his great passion for revenge. 
So the cause of pride, envy, and wrath, not anger. Anger is not a sin. Pride, envy, and wrath is um, love of evil. The source of evil in the world is man and his disordered loves. The Protestant world radically changes that. It says man is inherently depraved. The Catholic Church says no, he's not inherently depraved. God made nothing depraved. He made everything good. It's the loves that we have that create these problems. So that's the cause of the the disorders, the evils on the lower three ledges. Um, on the upper three ledges, men are doing penance for the love of good things. Avarice, gluttony, lust, things, food and drink, and sex. Those are naturally good. Man loves them. The problem is he loves them too much. He's not restrained himself concerning those things and they've developed into sins, disorders. And the middle edge, the middle edge you know is sloth. It's inadequate love. So the first three levels of sins are pride, envy, and wrath, sloth, avarice, gluttony, and lust. And lust is the one sin that most approaches or approximates love. And it's where the poets meet. Now that's just a, a quick review. What I want to do for a few minutes here, the major concerns through the whole of the Purgatorio is sight, the penitents recovering their sight. They all see, we talked about this last week, everybody sees well. We all see each other well. And in some ways, we don't realize that we don't see well at all. So sight, how to, how to recover our sight, our mind, our heart. Idolatry, we'll get to it, and poetry. Those are the three major concerns for tonight. Sight, recovering it. Idolatry, we'll look at it, and poetry. But for now, let me let me stop. I want to go back. Um, if if I'll take a second for questions, but what I want to do is go back and pick up what we did last week because I thought it was so good, and I'd like to just um, reinforce it for a moment if I can. Any questions about what we've done? Or about what Dante's doing up to this point? Let me go back to the question that I asked last week because I, I thought it was really important and it, it's, it sets a principle for the whole of the Purgatorio. What's wrong with pride? In what way does pride blind us? What, what does it see and what doesn't it see? In what way is pride blinding? I, I, I really... This stuff is so important. I don't want this to just be a work of literature. This is what Dante's showing us is something about ourselves and the kinds of things that human beings can do to return to God. So how does pride blind us? What does it see and what does it not see? You can go back to the examples, or I'd be glad for new examples if any of you have thought about it. And What's wrong with pride? How, how does it, in what way does it blind us? Melanie. Pride only, pride only allows us to see, or when, when we're prideful, we only see what we want to see, and we're blinded um, 
about what God sees in us or what God sees in others. So we see ourselves maybe inflated and others deflated because of that. Anybody else? Doc? Jump in here, can you? Truly. What's prime? What is it? Seeing yourself only as you see. Can you hear Doc? Can you hear? Can you speak up, Doc, a little bit? It's seeing yourself as you believe you are or maybe want to be um, so that you don't see other people, you don't see their goodness, you don't see their... even if, even if you're, if you are in fact better or more beautiful um, you don't see the goodness in other people. Okay, can you all hear? Anybody else? Anybody else? When we're proud, we put ourselves above other people. We look down on them, um, so we don't see the goodness in them. Um, remember that line in Dante, I just thought it was wonderful when Remember when we came to the level of the envy? Um, l let me just go there quickly. I'll come back to pride. What, what's the problem with envy? Um, what, how, how do we see through a spirit of envy? In what way does it blind us? What is it that we don't see when we envy something? Remember? When we're envious, we only see what we don't have based on what others do have. Yeah. Remember when, he, when we were talking about that statement that Guido made about partnership, the problem that with human beings? He said, the problem with envy is that because we have our mind on material things, and material things are reducible, they're diminishable, that... Um, so if we're in the stock market and um, somebody takes a share and it puts us in danger or in jeopardy of losing something, our envy will drive us. I mean, we, um, we don't like it when somebody gets something we don't have. He said the trouble with humans is that they put their minds on material things and because material things are reducible or they can be lost, um, we're glad when other people don't get what we want. And we're sorrowful when um, we don't get when we don't get what we want for ourselves. So the problem is we put our minds on things here instead of heavenly things. And I think about the Eucharist. You know, it's a stunning thing. Christ took a body back to heaven. He took on his infinite nature again, and he feeds humans. It's like the widow. Um, there are two widows in the Old Testament who who fed. I think one of them was Elisha. Um, she fed him the last of her food, and it didn't run out. And the same thing happened with the other widow, that she had these loaves, and there, were, there was more left over. That's before Christ comes. Um, that when we turn to God, we're turning to something infinite. When we turn to the Eucharist, the supply will never run out. He's infinite. So he can feed from his body forever. So the part of the problem is that we turn too much towards worldly things and then get ourselves in these fixes. But to go back to pride, we, um, when, when we put ourselves above other human beings, uh, 
we don't see the goodness in them and we don't see God's goodness. Um, we, we're blind to it. All we can see is what feeds our own ego. Those things that we want, um, that we think we deserve. If, if somebody gets something we think we, de we deserve and don't get it, we're going to be envious in our pride. Pride's behind all of the sins. Um, why are the, the proudful um, carrying the burdens? Remember, they're bowed down. They've got these big boulders on their backs. They see the checks in front of them, and they have to strain to look at the goads. What does that say about seeing? for the proudful, what do they have to do and why? Michael, are you, go ahead. I, I was, uh, the burden, the big boulders they're carrying, uh, it, come, it brings to mind to me that the prideful inflate themselves so much, it's almost like they're making a boulder of them, of, of their inflated self uh, that, that they are forced to carry. But, you know, so, so is it an act of mercy that God put the, the goads on the, on the ground so that they could see them when they were bent over? I don't know. I think, I think the problem with the proudful is that they put too many burdens on other people. You know, they didn't do small things because they're proudful and now they have to carry these weights because they didn't learn to carry them in life. Um, I, I think what's going on with the turning, I mean, I'm glad to hear anybody's thoughts on this, but I think, the, so it's easy for them to see bad because they've been too used to seeing those things. You know, they're above things. They don't pay attention to things. They have to work at seeing the good. They have to, with these big boulders on there, they have to make a huge effort to turn to the face of the mountain to see good. I think when you're proud um, and you're above things, um, you're not open to them. There's no reason for you to look because you think you're better. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to do those things. The proudful are being forced to strain to see because I think that's what they didn't do in life. They didn't make the efforts to see. They were too above things. They weren't open. Um, so the, the point here is that at each level, the contrapasso is a reflection of, <clears throat> of an answer to their sin. <clears throat> so in the envy, <clears throat> sorry, the envious have their eyes wired shut. They rejected the good things in the world because they... Um, they wanted to see people lose them because they didn't have them. Now their eyes are shut. At every one of these levels, penitents are learning to see in a different way. That's absolutely crucial to see. The proud have to make an effort. They have to work at seeing. The envious can't see the good they rejected. They have to learn to see inwardly. So those of us who take pride in ourselves and think we see so well, you know, we've got good eyes. We understand so well. Very often, we lack an internal spirit of understanding. We just don't see inwardly. The envious have their eyes wired shut. The, ang the angry or the wrathful are in clouds of smoke. They get ecstatic visions. All of them are learning to see in other ways, inwardly. 
with effort to answer the blindness that has been a part of their condition all of their lives. So the whole of purgatory is a cleansing, a, a purifying of sight, of mind and heart, learning to see in ways they didn't see in the world and learning to feel things differently from the way they felt. If you think you're right in all things, your feelings are going to go that way. You're going to think your feelings are right, but our feelings are so often unreliable. We've seen the harmful effects of pity all the way along, that pity can arrest us. Um, ordering our loves is the work of purgatory. Everybody going up purgatory is learning to order their loves, to learn to love better, lawfully, in justice, in charity. Okay, let me let me stop. I want to I want to get to Stasius and and uh, the siren. Any any questions or comments about all of this? Any of it? Lindsay, I'm glad for any questions. You you I know you're coming in and so I, I'm assuming you're a little bit bewildered. I don't I, Have you ever read the Divine Comedy before? Um, no. no. So I'm going to have to play some catch up, but that's okay. Yeah. Anybody, any questions? Bob, you've got a question? No, no? Okay. Let's um, go to this is close to where we left off. Um, on 289, Dante and Virgil are ascending from the level of the wrathful. I remember. Yeah. And they're going to go to the level of the slothful. On 289, as they ascend the stairway, the angel removes one of the peas on Dante's forehead for the sin in Italian. This is an angel of the Lord who comes to show us the ascent before we ask and hides himself in his own radiance. He treats us as a man would treat himself who sees the need but waits for the request already is half guilty of denial. If we, if we see that something needs to be done and we wait to be asked, we're not being truly virtuous. We're putting somebody in the position of having to ask us when we should be doing it ourselves. The angel of meekness is showing, I mean, the beauty of what we're, I mean, remember, every angel is showing us some aspect of love as Dante and Virgil ascend. This is an angel of the Lord who comes to show us the ascent before we ask and hides himself in his own radiance. It's like an image of the Holy Spirit. We don't see him. His goodness, almost in a sense, depends on his making himself invisible. He's hidden in the goodness he performs. It's just another way of showing that what the penitents are learning is to learn to give themselves freely without calling attention to themselves. Because to go back to pride, or envy, or any of them, so often we do things in our world so that people will look at us. Look how successful I am, look how smart I am. Look how much money I am, look how beautiful I am, or handsome, or how well I play, this or that, you know. 
here we're seeing God, God didn't create the world to call attention to himself. He created it freely. He made everything good. After the fall, so much of what we do is for ourselves. The love we turn to God is um, to ourselves. Here the angel makes himself invisible in the act of giving himself. It's a, it's a beautiful image. Um, I, on 293, Virgil follows up his discourse on love, or on uh, the, the, the cause of evil in the world, by describing love. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's too difficult to go into right now, and I, I, I think I'll come back to it next week, but um, to the, the, the nature of love and how it's awakened to the human soul, where how evil starts in us and what it does to love is really important on page 293 and 94. Um, I'm going to come back to it. Um, right now I want to get to um, the siren. On the level of the slothful, all the, the penitents are moving. They have to keep in motion. Prayer, prayer is their penance to keep moving because the problem with them in life is um, indifference, um, despair, ennui, boredom. They didn't love enough. So now as an answer to that, they have to move. So in 296, we get this line faster, faster. We have no time to waste for time is love. Remember, on purgatory, people don't measure time the way they do in a scientific world. You, we measure things by love. Um, it came up the other day, Suzanne and I were talking about it, I wish I could recall it, that you can't measure a person's love by scientific time, whether it takes place in five seconds or five minutes or five hours. Love is a different form. It requires eyes of love to see it, to recognize it, and eyes of love to receive it. So once again, we're aware that we're in a different world. Um, um, we, we can't look at things the way the world does. For time is love, and he says, um, go down below 296. We cannot stop. Desire to race keeps on running through us. We beg your pardon then if penance seems to be discourtesy. There are times I, I can remember... I can remember when I went to UD, God, it's just embarrassing to look back on. I can remember when I went to UD, I was so enthralled to be here with really good students. And we were in a class and had just come out of a class that was really engrossing. And we were outside Braniff Hall and ready to, and we were engaged in a conversation, very lively. And suddenly the campus, the, the uh, tower bells went off. And the young woman, who was just a, a bright, bright young woman, ran off to Mass. I could not understand why she would run off to Mass. And I, I think of that moment when I read this line, if penance seems to be discourteous. There are times when to do something in love may seem a discourtesy to other people when it's not. Or there's times when um, we trap ourselves by trying to be courteous in dealing with evil. When evil asks for something sharper. So we can't read a page in which Dante isn't sort of reorienting us to the world. Um, um, okay, I want to... Um, Dante falls asleep 
And when he wakes up, um, or he's describing this dream, page 298. It was the hour when the heat of day, quenched by Earth's cold, cannot prevail against the lunar chill, when geomancers see far in the east Fortuna Major rise before the dawn along a path soon to be bathed in light. There came into my dream a woman stuttering, cross-eyed, stumbling along on her main feet with ugly yellow skin and hands deformed. I stared at her, and as the sun revives, a body numb by the night's cold, just so my eyes upon her work to free her tongue and straighten out all her deformities, gradually suffusing her wan face with just the color love would have desired. And once her tongue was loosened by my gaze, she started singing. You all remember the siren episode in the Odyssey. Remember in the journeys, Odysseus and his men came to the island and could hear the sirens. Odysseus wanted to hear her, so he, um, he kept the plugs out of his ears while the men had their ears stopped, and he could hear her. And what we see are all these skulls, bones of dead men, who were so entranced by the, whatever this, I don't want to name anything, whatever this power was that the siren had, that all these men die. Um, gradually suffusing her wan face with just the color Lud would have desired. And once her tongue was loosened by my gaze, she started singing, and the way she sang captured my mind. It could not free itself. I am, she sang, the sweet siren. I am, whose song beguiles the sailors in mid-sea, enticing them, inviting them to joy. My singing man Ulysses turn away from his desired course, who dwells with me seldom departs, I satisfy so well. Her lips had not yet closed when there appeared a saintly lady standing at my side, ready to foil the siren's stratagem. Virgil, Virgil, who is this? she cried with indignation. Virgil moved towards her, keeping his gaze fixed on that noble one. He seized the other, ripped her garment off, exposing her as far down to the punch. The stench pouring from her woke me from my sleep. The woman is Lucia, I think. It's the same woman you remember that Beatrice went to get. Or No, Mary got Lucia, Lucia got Beatrice. Lucia's light. What we're being shown here is that Virgil, reason, was not capable of doing this on his own. Once again, remember when... When we looked at the Medusa, Virgil had to turn Dante away. Whatever this is, Virgil did not have, reason was incapable of, of turning Dante away, of waking him up. It was only because of Lucia, a divine light, that Virgil can do what he does and um, frees him from this dream. Now, hold on to this just for a second. We're at the level of slothful. We've passed the first three cornices, love of evil, and the slothful, inadequate love. This siren is an image of all that's going to happen in the next three ledges, avarice, gluttony, lust. So she's telling us something about the soul engaged in those sins, avarice, gluttony, lust. And remember, this was in the Odyssey. So Dante, once again, is taking his past. He's taking Homer. But he's using the siren in a new way to show us something else. What is he showing us? What is the siren? Where does she get her power? 
from Dante. Hold on. Maria, are you there? Yes, I'm here. <laughs> Who is the siren? What is she? How does, why does Dante put her here? Can you show yourself? Miriam, um, yeah, by the way, sorry, just for a second. All of those, I'm sorry, all of those who you come in a little bit late, Lindsay Cox, you can see her, um, is joining us tonight. Um, I hope she'll stay. We'll see. She and her mom, I hope. So, Maria, this is Lindsay. Lindsay, this is Maria. Hi. If you want answers to any philosophic questions, you go to Maria. It's true. <laughs> Everybody knows that. She can, yeah, you can. T Mike, tell me if I'm not being truthful here. Yeah. Maria, who's the siren? What is she? What is, what is Dante doing with her? <laughs> I actually haven't read to this point. No? I am missing. Yeah. Yeah. Can you take a guess? It's, it's probably too much if this is the first time you've read it. I stared, so this woman stuttering, cross-eyed, stumbling, maimed feet, ugly yellow skin, hands deformed. I stared at her as the sun revives a body, when you know, go into the sunlight, as the sun revives a body, numb by the night's cold, just so my eyes upon her worked to free her tongue, straighten out all her deformities, gradually suffusing her wan face with just the color love would have desired. Once he sets her tongue going, and her singing starts, he cannot tear himself away. What's going on in this scene? And how's it emblematic of everything that's about to happen in the upper three ledges? Is he seduced by his by her singing? Say again is Seduced. By, by when she starts to sing, he's, oh. he's seduced by it. Yeah, but where does she get her power? What's her power? By the way, I just don't want to... Her power is absolute. Well, no, almost absolute. He cannot free himself from her. Right? Reason's not capable. Virgil would not have wakened him. It's only when Lucia comes to get... <laughs> Look, and this is so good. I mean, this is sharpness, harshness, you know, this soft world that we live in. Um, Lucha comes, a saintly lady. Virgil, Virgil, who is this? She cried with indignation. Virgil moved towards her, keeping his gaze fixed on that noble one. While he looks at her, he seizes the other one, rips her garments off, exposing herself to the punch, and letting out this stench that woke Dante. So whatever her power is, it's great enough to take hold of reason. I think that the the siren is a representation of a like a bad habit, like uh, somebody who's an alcoholic or gambler, and they know that what they are looking at is wrong and bad, but then they allow that their their vision. The longer they stare at it, the longer they they stay engaged with it. They, their vision changes. They like beer goggles, and they, you know, they they change, and then they fall in love with that thing, even though they know that it's harmful. Yeah, where does where does the power where does her power come from, Melody? 
uh, from the uh, excessive love that the person is showing to that. They, they know that what they're looking at is wrong or what they're doing is wrong, but they can't tear themselves away from it. Yep. It's, it's, it's in my mind the most perfect image of idolatry that I know of. The power that she has comes from Dante. The more he looks at her, the more he frees her tongue. My, my eyes upon her work to free her tongue and straighten out all her deformities. What we're looking at is a fallen creature. Well, I, I mean, I, I, I'm used to doing this in class. I'm not sure that it's appropriate here. But, you know, when young couples first fall in love, they look at each other through eyes of desire. The tendency is to, or to idealize in both a man and a woman. It's one of the trials of marriage. We idealize each other, the desires that we awaken. But once we wake up three months later, you know, and we find out <laughs> this guy's got hair on his belly or, you know, or, or she's got bad breath in the morning. I, mean, I remember, I've, I think I've read that Shakespeare poem, My Eyes, where he describes the hair on her head as wires, and I'm going to read it again, but... Because I, I think, he says, is my love less than somebody who idealizes? What he's doing is, is crit critiquing the whole Petrarchan tradition of over-idealizing a woman. Because what it does is show how self-centered the man is. He wants to make this woman something in his pride. There, there it is. In his pride, because he thinks he deserves all this, Right? He's going to create this thing for himself. If she's not going, to, if she's, if she doesn't live up to what he thinks he deserves, what's he going to do with her? Or, or reverse it. Once, a, if a woman thinks she deserves more than this guy because he starts turning out to have faults, what's she going to do with him? So this is, I think, the most perfect representation of idolatry that we know of. It, it's the tendency of the human soul, in its pride or envy, to want something great enough that the person feels is deserving to him or her. So if a woman were proudful and looking at a man, what? how would she see him? Would she see him as she is? Would she love him? Straighten out all her deformity. So what Dante's showing us is a human being in a fallen condition. How many of us are really as beautiful as we make each other out to be in our courtship, because very often we find out we're not, you know, we're not what we seem to be. We've got all these deformities and weaknesses and faults. Straighten out her deformities, gradually suffusing her wan face with just the color love would have desired. This idealizing tendency. Once her tongue was loosed by my gaze, she started singing, and the way she sang captured my mind, and it could not free himself. I am, she sang the sweet song. It's exactly what um, Melody was describing a minute ago. If you're a gambler at a table, the longer you look at that table, you know, the harder it will be to get away from it. What, whatever, whatever it is that you attach that too great an importance to, too great a desire, and the way it answers our pride or envy or anger, whatever emotion is. Remember, the, the seed of everything for Dante is human responsibility. We are, we are free creatures. God made us free. He's left us here to get better. Um, these struggles are, this is Boethius' argument, these struggles are allowed 
to find out who we are, what our weaknesses are, how much we need God. Let me stop for a second. Any, any questions here or comments on this? No? Okay, so I think it would be interesting, you know, to see... I've, I've been visualizing what it would be like to be in purgatory and have one of these struggles come up against you. I mean, does that set you back for a hundred years? I mean, I just... I, I know t time isn't the same in purgatory right, as it right. is here, but it just, how long would I be stuck with some siren before I figured out that that's not what I, what I think it should be? You know, I just think it's very interesting. I, I personalize a lot of this book, so I just think it would be interesting to to think about it in those terms, yeah. those setbacks. But so when you said struggles are allowed just because God wants us to identify our weaknesses and get over them, I thought that was a good way to put that. Michael, you were shaking. Did you did you did you have a response to Melody? Did you want to say something? You don't have to. I just wondered. Just Melody, I think your question's um, so appropriate, um, and I I know it's like you to do that. It's it's one of the reasons I enjoy your comments. Um, I, there's no answer to that. I mean, that I can give or any of us. You know, I mean, some people enter AA at 18 and are still attending. I, we, we know people who have been parents and, you know, who have been involved with the daughter in, um, I think it's Al-Anon, for ages. I mean, just years and years. You know, they're towards the end of their lives and... And we know, we know that, um, I know this personally myself from my own struggles. I can't believe any of you don't know the same thing, that struggling to put our sins is um, always with us. Um, and um, we trip. I mean, I, one of the things I've been sort of pressing at you guys since we started is, whatever you do, do not despair. I, I don't care how bad it is. Whatever you do, I just so believe that whatever sins we commit, we cannot let them uh, become greater than God's goodness. That's one of the problems where we, pride, you know, make, I mean, one of the problems with pride is that we can make our sins greater than God. It seems to me the only answer to that is keep falling <laughs> until you realize that, you know, there's a greater good and you need it. I think that's one of the basic principles of AA. Um, but I don't think there's an easy answer. I mean, the inward life, the the, the work that God does with graces is so mysterious and um, so often we think we see things and we don't so um, setbacks are real um, I think at least one of the things that gives me courage I'm speaking personally now for myself when I think a ch and I and I apply this to myself I'm a, I'm close to the end of my life I think about kids taking little steps and walking you know, I'm a grown man and there are times, I'm not kidding, I'm being very honest with you guys, there are times when I feel like I'm taking little steps with respect to my own sins that, you know, you fall back again, you're going to confession and, um, but I think, I mean, in that context, I, I don't, I just want to, I, I do not want to be cavalier here. You know, in that respect, there's a great grace going on for anyone, anyone who's open to it. 
That's why I think pride is, um, is, is such an important thing to look at. How open are the proudful to grace or powers greater than their own? If you think you're better than anybody or you're self-sufficient, why do you need God? The irony of that, the irony is this. This is one of the great ironies about pride. Remember, in the level of pride, they're learning the, 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 the virtue opposite the sin is um, humility, lowliness. Um, if you're too proud, you think you're better than other people, then you always think you don't get what you deserve and want more, and you keep going after it. And One of the ironies is God came into the world. Is there a proud person in the world who could ever stand next to Christ and say, he's better than Christ? You know, Paul's lines about um, the weakness of God is greater than the strength of men, or the, yeah. the, the foolishness of God is is wiser than the wisdom of men, you know. Um, uh, <laughs> anyway, I just, uh, the, the part of the beauty of this is, is it is forward going, forward moving. It's encouraging everybody by its very movement to keep going. Remember the Terzarima, A-B-A, B-C-B, you know, the rhyme itself, we don't have it in our book because it's, but the rhyme itself, the, all, everything about the motion is to keep moving in this spirit, um, to not look back. If you fall, get up, turn around, look forward. Well, and I do see that the struggles that we have in life right now, you know, people who go to Alcoholic Anonymous who struggle with that kind of thing, that struggle is taking place now, so maybe it doesn't have to when they're in purgatory. So maybe Dante, I don't know what, the struggle is that the siren represents for him, except maybe pride. Um, but if if you're struggling with that in life, that's something you don't have to deal with in in purgatory because you've already struggled with it. So it's kind of a, it's a good thing to to or, have those struggles now. Yeah, or you continue, or you continue. And I mean, you know that I've I've been saying all along that I think purgatory is an image of our work on the church. That that mountain, everything about that is the church on earth. I, I mean, I've really tried to be emphatic. All the the art, the help, everything about it is assisting these souls up. That image is art. Remember, remember Augustine's words. There are two cities: the city of God, the city of men. And there's this peregrine, this pilgrim city. Our home is not here. If we start looking at here. We want to be settled. We want to be successful, accomplished. As if our greatest good is here, we're in trouble. We're supposed to be moving. And the church is purgatory. It's So my response to that is, yeah, but I'm, I'm assuming all of this is part of purgatory. So those souls who want go, I mean, if they're going to go to purgatory, are going to continue. Except I think, I mean, I, you know, I, it's, it's hard to imagine. I mean, what you're trying to do, I, I, I do the same thing. In purgatory, you're surrounded by those people who want to do the same thing, so you're all helping each other. Um, let's go on, because I want to get to... Um, he meets Hugh Capet Capet, and um, who once again um, um, offers one of these criticisms again of the world and the worldliness 
Um, on page 308, um, he talks about the failings of the papacy again, and Philip the Fair, the king of France, taking a power that he didn't have. Um, on 310, um, he says, suddenly I felt the mountain shake. Um, and this Christ figure emerges. 311, um, I was still grieving at the just pain those sounds must pay when suddenly, just as we read in Luke, that Christ, new risen from the tomb, appeared to the two men on the Emmaus road. A shade appeared. This is Dante's way of saying um, he's completed his purgation. He's a Christ bearer. In him, Virgil and Dante see Christ. He, he greets them, middle of 312, and then my teacher said, if you observe those marks the angel has traced on his brow, you see that he must dwell among the just. There's that justice again. Nothing is going on here. Nothing that does not bring law and mercy together. But she who labors spinning day and night had not spun out for him the flax with clotho packs on her distaff for each one of us. Therefore his soul, sister to yours and mine, is coming up, could not come up by itself because it does not see as our eyes do. So Virgil is explaining um, to um, this soul why he's there. Um, now, on page... 314. Um, remember that the lines that I wrote er, or I read earlier on 313 when he says, the, the will will the will who wants God will reach a point on its own where it's freed and it will move itself. This is an anticipation of what's about to happen in purgatory. Because when Virgil gets Dante up to, um, I'm sorry, up to not but um, to Eden, when they arrive at Eden and they're about to get there, Virgil will say to him, "I now, this is crucial. I now pronounce you, King, Prophet. What's the doc? Help me, King. What are the three in baptism? Um, Priest. Priest, Priest, Prophet, King. Priest, Prophet, King." He's free. Whatever he does, he will do in love. He's free. So we have an anticipation of that on 313 when Stasius arrives and he's, you know, he, he talks about the will to rise on its own, the freedom. And then he explains um, why he's here and what's just happened. He says on 314, During the rule of the good Titus, who assisted the king of kings, avenged the wounds that pound, poured forth blood which um, Judas sold, I bore the title that endures the most and which is honored most. That so replied, renowned, I had not yet the Christian faith. The spirit of my verses was so sweet from Tudelis, Rome called me to herself and judged me worthy of the myrtle crown. He was given, he was made the poet laureate. The spark that kindled my poetic ardor came from the sacred flame that set on fire more than a thousand poets, I mean the Aeneid. That was the mother of my poetry, the nurse that gave it suck. Now, he, at this moment, he doesn't know that this is Virgil. But what he's doing is praising Virgil because it was Virgil that led him to Christianity. Um, without that poem, my verses would not be worth a thing. And if only I could have been alive when Virgil lived, 
I would consent to spend an extra year of exile on the Mount. Remember, we talked about this when we did Virgil. Virgil wrote this eclogue the, in the Bucolics. It, it was praising the agrarian way of life because Rome was becoming corrupted. It's modern America. Alan Tate's Aeneas in Washington is the poem about that, that America has corrupted its Troy, it's being destroyed from within. Virgil has this passage where he um, um, foretells the coming of a babe that will renew the world, redeem it. The modern, the, the ancient church fathers love Virgil because they saw his, him as a prophet of Christ. At the, at the top of 315, at these words, Virgil turned to me. His look told me in silence, in silence, silence. But the power of a man's will is often powerless. Laughter and tears follow so close upon the passions that provoke them that the more sincere the man, the less they obey his will. I smiled. Um, Stasius says, um, you seem to find my smiling very strange, I said to him. Oh, ancient spirit. Stasius says, what are you doing? Dante says, Oh, ancient spirit, but I have to tell you something stranger still. This shade here who directs my eyes to heaven is the poet Virgil, who bequeathed to you the power to sing the deeds of men and gods. Stasius wrote this, what was one of the greatest ancient uh, epics of the ancient world, was modeled on the Aeneid. It, was, it, it doesn't have the stature of, of Virgil or Homer, but it was a great poem then. In truth, the only reason for my smile is that you chose to mention Virgil here, your very words are guilty of my smile. 316, already he was bending to embrace my teacher's feet. But Virgil, brother, no, you are a shade. It is a shade you are. And Stasius rising, now you understand how much my love for you burns deep in me when I forget about our emptiness. He tries to clasp him, and because it's shade, clasping shade, his arms go through him. Do you remember where this happened before? It's happened in our readings. When Odysseus visited the underworld and he saw his mother, do you remember what happened? Tried to clasp her several times and his arms went through her. This is one of the motifs of, you know, humans visiting the underworld. Wordsworth, William Wordsworth, wrote a poem called Surprised by Joy. I think I read it to you guys before. His sister, and he used to take walks constantly, and she died. And he was on a walk once, and as a, as a poet of nature who loved nature, he was so overwhelmed, so taken up by the joy of what he was seeing, that he turned to say something to her. She wasn't there. Surprised by joy. And we know, you know, of seniors who've had this experience, when one of them dies, that something will, they'll be enraptured for a moment. And it's like they forget their mortality and turn for a moment as if the person's still there. Um... Stasius is going to give one of the most important discourses on the body. Um, we'll come to it. Um, but um, they meet with Ferizi on page 326. And we learn from him that his sister is in heaven. Um, and his brother's in hell. 330. Um See, um, wait. A, it's one of the, it's another example of 
um, families being separated. When we were in the inferno, we, we met a soul at the tombs, remember, whose, um, whose son, a father, didn't know where his son was. Father and son are separated in hell and heaven. Here we've got um, um, a brother separated from his sister. His sister's in heaven. We'll meet her when we get there. His brother's in hell. It's another reminder of the dangers of the family, that the family can become ingrown, make itself too much, and things happen. Um, the, 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 the bonds of a family aren't permanent. The source of permanence for anything is God. A family can't give itself that permanence. Um, um, turn to 320. Wait. Um, they continue to rise and they get to the level of gluttony. 320. Stasius is still talking to me. He says, Before I brought the Greeks to Theban streams with my poetic art, I was baptized, but was a secret Christian out of fear, pretending to be pagan many years, and for this lack of zeal, I had to run 400 years on the fourth circle. Now please tell me, you who did remove the veil that once concealed for me the good I praise, tell me while there is still time to climb, where is our ancient Terence? Do you know all the other poets? Let me take a moment here. We learned from Avarice that he was on the ledge of Avarice for 500 years. So, Melody, whatever, however long you envisioned these setbacks you have, Stasius was on <laughs> the level of the Avarice for 500 years. Here we learn he was on the level of sloth for um, 400. And we learn also that the, his sin wasn't... Um, um, what does he say? His sin, was, his sin was prodigality, that he loved things too much. So he's done over 900 years of time on purgatory. And all I can do is remind you of the words in the Mass, because at the center of the, our Mass are the words, always and everywhere to be grateful. <laughs> Even if it may take 900 years to get there, but... But here, I want to stop here because we're about out of time. I've got this question. I want to pick up here with, with um, Stasius because he's too important a figure and go through these last cantos a little bit more slowly and get to the poets because I, I want to take a minute with that. But I want, to, I want to ask, I just want to point this out and see what your response is. These, this handful of cantos that we've been read, reading since Stasius emerged when the mountain shook he loves Virgil. Virgil led him to Christ. Virgil says, says to him, I'm still in hell. I've come to take this man through. Stasius, who was a pagan, is going to surpass him, go beyond. It's a touching scene between two poets, one of whom inspired the other to Christianity, who will go back to hell. And Stasius, um, who will go on, who was a pagan, who was baptized, but hid it. He was afraid. These two men have a tender affection for each other. One of them is going to have to say goodbye to the other, who's going to go back to hell, while he goes on to Eden and paradise. What's happening in this exchange? What is Dante showing us? To me, it's, it's, it's a tender, tender moment. These two men love each other. 
Stasius just knelt down at Virgil's feet, practically in tears. He loved this man so much. And you know that Virgil came to Dante because Dante loved Virgil so much. We're, we're, we're almost right there, the next point at which Virgil will say to Dante, I crown you priest, prophet, king. You are free. Do whatever you will. Love, this, these, this, these are Augustine's words, love and do what you will. Dante will see Beatrice come. <coughs> His legs will shake. He will get nervous. At that moment, he turns to Virgil, and Virgil's gone. What's happening in this moment, in this, this, this handful of cantos involving um, Stasius and Virgil? Anybody want to comment on them? It's a touching, human, very human stage. You might relate it to pity, too, because we've talked a lot about it. Okay, uh, so it shows that um, I guess you learn not to pity those who are in hell. I mean, even Stasius, who loves Virgil, um, has to recognize that Jesus uh, wasn't there. Um, so Virgil can't be saved in that respect. Um I was surprised Stasius didn't ask more questions to Virgil, like, what do you mean you're in hell? Are you okay? You know, like, I would have wanted to know a little more about, <laughs> you know, his, his life there. But, um, How can I have the Elliot poem? Just that he, that he couldn't be saved because he didn't know Jesus yet. And that's why, but, but he has to move on. Stasius knows that's God's plan and he has to move on. Yeah, it's interesting that it's really interesting that you'd put it that way, um, Melody, because it 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 does add a, 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 an element of human depth to it again. I mean, here I'm going to just quickly read this, and then I want to comment on the on the question that I just asked. Remember in the Eliot poem we read earlier, and pray to God to have mercy upon us, and pray that I may forget these matters that with myself I too much discuss. Too much explained because I do not hope to turn again. Let these words answer. I mean, you know, he goes on. Allegorically, it seems to me what's happening here is sort of amazing. And it's a spiritual sight. You know, we're watching two men who, whose love for each other is real. Um, God, it's, it's a touching scene. Um, I think what's also happening is that Dante's showing us um, how to put this, that there's a quality of reason that has to be left behind. What's happening right now is that reason is maturing. We're seeing a Christ bearer who spent over 900 years on purgatory moving forward. But the kind of reason that Virgil represents is a kind of reason that's about to be left behind. It's not that what Dante is going to carry forward is going to lack reason, because it won't. Beatrice is going to be as rational in everything she does as Virgil. She's going to give explanations. She's going to be, there's going to be tons of questions. It's, and they're going to be doing a little bit of what Melody just said. You know, Dante is going to have lots of questions. Virgil, I mean, Beatrice is going to be answering them. All with reason. 
But I think at this point, what, what Dante's showing us is through this stage, is that a kind of reason that defined Dante earlier is being replaced with another kind of reason. It's more infused with a grace. So it's not black-white, it's not, it's not being left behind, it is being transformed. That's at an allegorical level. This other poet emerges. Um, there's something made about the fact that Virgil's going to go back to hell. He mentions it um, openly. So I think we're meant to be aware allegorically that there's a quality to reason that, that whatever that is, name it, has to be left behind. It's not that reason won't work, but it will be infused with a grace, a love. I mean, think about the love that, that um, Stasius. This is really, Stasius has a great love for this man. So it's, it's, a, it's a reason and love that takes a different character from the character it took earlier. Is that clear? Is that clear? No? Melody, are you there? Have you gone? Yes, I'm here. Is that clear? Yes, yes. to me it is because, well, like you said um, before in the past, that reason alone isn't enough um, to get us into heaven. Um, it takes that supernatural, extraordinary um, something or other, which is grace. And that's what Stasius is trying, or that's what Dante's trying to show here, is that Stasius and Virgil are basically on the same plane, but Stasius has that grace that God has given him, yeah. and that's why he gets to move on. Yeah. It's a kind of spiritual sight, you know, it, it, it's really, if we go back to hell, remember, this is so interesting to talk with you guys. Remember in hell, the, the mode of knowing is irony. The, the souls in hell don't know that they don't know. They're all trapped in reason. They've got their reasons, their justifications, their accusations, but they're, they're in a world of law. They're just bound by that law. In purgatory, the mode changes. It's no longer irony, it's wonder. All the souls are moving forward. But we're watching the soul, in Dante, we're watching the soul move from a, one condition to another. And it's important to see how gradual it is and what's going on at each stage. So in the lower levels of purgatory, we're watching people recover their sight. And remember the cost of this. This, this is what sort of I'm laughing at. Melody, Melody your, your picture's not up anymore. Can you? I don't know if you can come back if you can. Um, I'm laughing because... because um, Stasius has spent 900 years on Mount Purgatory. So um, remember what's at issue here is love, not scientific time. And I, I don't even know. I mean, I, I'm supposing that that's real time as we know it. But in some sense, it, we, it, I think it's important that we see, um, I don't know, the time almost doesn't matter. And, I, and, I, and I'm reluctant to put it that way. Um, He's here. Um, he's about ready to ascend to Eden. And amazing things are going to happen. So what I'd like to do next week is pick up here with Stasius. I want to go back and look briefly at gluttony and avarice. And then I'd like to spend a little bit of time on, uh, on the level of lustful with the poets um, to see what Dante's up to and then go to Eden where Dante meets Beatrice. And Virgil will disappear he will go back 
um, and Dante will go forward. So um, next week we'll. I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to finish the Purgatorio. I'm going to go into it with the with the mind of trying to finish it, and then we'll start the Paradiso the week after. Any last comments or questions or? I did have one little thing yeah. that struck me. Um, so Virgil wrote his words hundreds and hundreds of years before Statius, but that's what brought Statius to Christianity, and eventually he'll get to heaven. Of course, poor Dante has to go back to hell, but he's not in the punishment phase of hell. You mean not Dante, but, you mean Virgil, go back I to mean, hell. I mean, Virgil has to go yeah. back to hell, but it's not the punishment part of hell. So anyway, I, it just struck me that sometimes the things that we do or say or write can have repercussions many, many ways that we never know about. Absolutely true. So I think that was wonderful for, for, for Virgil. I mean, I don't think he knew that he was the cause of Statius getting to heaven. For sure. Yeah, it's a wonderful comment, Mary Jane. What, was, what were um, Statius's years? I've forgotten. Um, he was born 45, 96. So he lived from what? So it wasn't hundreds of years. Um, Virgil, Virgil died somewhere around 70 BC. So Stasius came just shortly after him. But but you're right. Well, I, would, I was thinking of the hundreds of years in purgatory. Of course, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, the purgatory years. Yeah, but they didn't know. I mean, they weren't contemporary. Well, they were close to contemporary, but they didn't know each other, actually. So, But right, yeah, right. Your, point, your, your point is so well taken. So well taken. Um, yeah. Yeah. In a larger world in which grace works, who knows what effects any one person will have on another or when or over time. And remember from Boethius' perspective, um, God lives in an eternal now and a present. There's no past or future for him. So he can do with things, things that amaze us because we, we so often live in our view to time, you know, one thing after another. Um, yeah, it's a wonderful comment, Mary Jane. Anybody else? So, Dr. so you said Statius was converted by Virgil's writings? Yeah. What's well, amazing that Virgil was in hell, though. It's just so ironic, you know, because if he would have just paid more attention to his writings, he, he, you know what I mean? It's oh, just yes. Ironic, yeah. Yeah. You know, that he, he would have been in hell. I mean, you know, because he undoubtedly, if he's converting people in his writings, and I'm sure there's a lot of pride involved in that, but... I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I don't know if I should do this. I'm going to go out on a real limb. Maybe I should wait until next week because we're past time. But I, I had the longest struggle with this because I'm so fond of Virgil. You know I love the Aeneid. I mean, we've done it together. And and in some ways, I, I there was a time when Homer had me. I thought the Iliad and Odyssey. But there came a time when Virgil, I just, it was clear to me that Virgil went way beyond Homer in lots of ways. But I, I, so I grieved when Virgil went back to hell. I'm going to go out on a limb here. I think one of the things that Dante is doing is teaching us not to be too literal-minded. I believe in my heart of hearts that um, 
that if there's a real Virgil, and there is, and Dante loved him, that the likelihood, I can't say this, I can't, this, you know, the, one of our commandments is, don't take God's name in vain. We're not supposed to speak for God. The outcome of the soul is not in our hands, it's in his. We can't see. It doesn't mean don't swear. It means don't, don't speak for God. We can't. So I'm, gonna, I'm saying this tentatively, provisionally. Um, my, it's hard for me to believe that Virgil is not in heaven. And I know that's going to sound blasphemous right now. I think Virgil in the book is Dante's way of trying to help us get past literalist reading habits. We tend to read too literally too often. And you know that I'm saying that believing that we, the deeper meanings only come to us through the little surface. We cannot ignore literally what happens. All the other meanings rest on the literal. But I think Dante knows there's a danger we can get stuck on the literal level. Um, it just seems to me that one of the things Dante is showing us here is that kind of reason um, has to be put away. That at some point for reason, for human beings to mature in love, their powers of reason have to change. And at an allegorical level, that's, that's what he's showing by having Virgil return. I, um, when we get to the level of justice in the Paradiso, we're going to see that God goes back in time because there is no past for him. He can do things with a past that we find hard to believe because we think once the past is over, it's dead. But that's not true for God. There is no past for him. So he can do things with people in the past um, that are hard for us to believe because we're too limited in the way, literally, we literally limit ourselves in the way we see things. Because what God's going to do is bring pagans into paradise from the past. We'll see it in the Paradiso. We're going to see amazing things in the Paradiso. Anyway, I'm out on a limb. So, <laughs> whatever you guys, that may, that may sound like a heresy in reading Dante, but um, I'm trying to be faithful to literally what goes on. Virgil's going back and it's important to see. I think allegorically what Dante's saying is there comes a time when we can't use reason the way we did when we were younger. And it's not because reason becomes inactive. It gets transformed in its character. The spirit of it has to change. Reason and faith go forward. That's what's going to happen with Dante and Beatrice. But it's a, it's a different kind of reason and faith than it is with Virgil, because remember, Virgil makes it clear, the reason he was in hell is because he did not have faith or hope or charity. Beatrice has them. So what she's doing with reason is helping reason to grow into something beyond what it can become in the natural man. Natural man by himself can't reach heaven. But natural man with his own natural powers of reason, with the help of grace, can. Let me leave it there. Is that clear? Is that clear? Okay. Um, um, we'll pick up here next week. Um, Lindsay, it was good to meet you. And good luck on your decisions, Lindsay. There's just a lot of big things facing you. So good luck. Thanks.
I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah, hope to see you again. Yeah. You guys, um, keep us everybody in your prayers, and um, all of you guys stay safe. See you next week.